0: I fear not the dark itself, but what may lurk within it. Welcome to Lurk, bringing you creepy, strange, and bone chilling stories with your host, Jamie Jackson. Welcome to episode 48. Before we get started, I wanted to say briefly that we are praying for Ukraine. I know we have some listeners in that region and thinking about everyone there and hoping for a positive outcome. For today's episode we're going to be talking about the Eastern Airlines Flight 401, its crash, and the subsequent hauntings. So hopefully no one is going to be flying anytime soon, since we are once again talking about a plane crash. Eastern Airlines Flight 401 was a scheduled flight from New York JFK International Airport to Miami, Florida. The plane was a four-month-old Lockheed l-1011 whisper liner the tri-star as the aircraft was also known was one of the most modern and technologically advanced planes of its day and the pride of the eastern airlines fleet the flight was under the command of captain robin bob albin loft who was 55 years old and a veteran pilot ranked 50th in seniority in eastern Captain Loft had been with the airline for 32 years and had accumulated a total of 29,700 flight hours throughout his flying career. He had logged 280 hours in the L-1011. The flight crew included 1st Officer Albert Bart John Stockstill, age 39, who had 5,800 hours of flying experience, with 306 of those in the L-1011, and Flight Engineer Donald Don Lewis Repo, age 51, who had 15,700 hours of flying experience, with 53 of them in the L-1011. A company employee, Technical Officer Angelo Donadio, age 47, was returning to Miami from an assignment in New York and was accompanying the flight crew on this trip, but he was off duty. On Friday, December 29, 1972, Flight 401 departed JFK at 9.20 p.m. Eastern Time with 163 passengers and 13 crew members on board. Everything was routine on the flight until 11.32 p.m. when the plane was making its approach into Miami International Airport. After lowering the gear, First Officer Stockstill noticed that the landing gear indicator, which is a green light indicating that the nose gear is properly locked in the down position, had not turned on. The pilot cycled the landing gear, but the confirmation light still failed to come on. It was later determined that the light was simply burned out. Captain Loft was working the radio during this part of the flight and informed the tower that they would discontinue their approach to their airport and requested to enter a holding pattern. The approach controller cleared the flight to climb to 2,000 feet and then hold west over the Everglades. The cockpit crew removed the light assembly and second officer repo was dispatched to the avionics bay beneath the flight deck to confirm, via a small porthole, if the landing gear was down. Fifty seconds after reaching their assigned altitude of 2,000 feet, Captain Loft instructed 1st Officer Stockstill to put the plane on autopilot. For the next 80 seconds, the plane maintained level flight. Then it dropped 100 feet, then leveled out and flew level for two more minutes. Then it began a descent that was so gradual it was not noticeable by the crew. In the next 70 seconds, the plane lost only 250 feet, but this was enough to trigger the altitude warning chime located under the engineer's workstation. The engineer, 2nd Officer Repo, had gone below, and no indication was heard from the pilot's voices recorded on the CVR that they heard the chime. In another 50 seconds, the plane was at half its assigned altitude, so that would be a thousand feet. As First Officer Stockstill started another turn onto 180 degrees, he noticed the discrepancy. This was the conversation recorded from the flight voice recorder Stockstill, we did something to the altitude. Loft, what? Stockstill, We're still at 2,000 feet, right? Loft. Hey, what's happening here? Less than 10 seconds after this exchange, the plane crashed. The cockpit area microphone recorded a click, then the sound of six beeps, similar to radio altimeter increasing in rate, and then the sound of the initial impact. The location was west-northwest of Miami, 18.7 miles from the end of runway 9L. In the tower, the controller noticed that his radar wasn't picking up Flight 401's transponder properly. This was the correspondence from the tower. And, uh, Eastern 401, are you requesting the equipment? Eastern 401, I've lost you on the radar there. Your transponder. What's your altitude now? Eastern 401, Miami. Then another pilot responded, Uh, Miami Tower, this is National 611. We just saw a big explosion. Looks like it was out west. I don't know what it means, but I thought you should know. Flight 401 was traveling at 227 miles per hour when it hit the ground. Because the airplane was in mid-turn, the left wingtip hit the surface first, then the left engine and the left landing gear making three trails through the sawgrass, each five feet wide and over a hundred feet long. When the main part of the fuselage hit the ground, it continued to move through the grass and water, breaking up as it went. Wreckage was scattered over an area 1,600 feet long and 330 feet wide in a southwesterly direction. Only small fragments of metal marked the wingtip's first contact, followed 49 feet further by three massive 115-foot swaths cut through the mud and sawgrass by the undercarriage, before two legs were sheared off. Then came scattered parts from the number one engine and fragments from the port wing itself and the port tailplane. About 490 feet from the wingtip's initial contact with the ground, the fuselage had begun to break up, scattering components from the underfloor gallery, the cargo compartments, and the cabin interior. At 820 feet along the wreckage trail, the outer section of the starboard wing tore off, gouging a 59-foot crater in the ground. At this point, the breakup of the fuselage became more extensive, scattering metal cabin fittings and passenger seats the three major sections of the fuselage the most intact of which was the tail assembly lay in the mud towards the end of the trail of the wreckage the fact that the tail assembly and rear fuselage number two tail mounted engine and remains of the empennage came to rest further than other major sections was probably the result of the number two engine still delivering thrust during the initial breakup. No complete cross-section of the passenger cabin remained, and both the port wing and the tailplane were demolished to fragments. Not far from the roofless fuselage center section, with the inner portion of the starboard wing still attached, lay a large, undamaged, fully inflated rubber dinghy, one of several carried on the TriStar, in the event of an emergency water landing. The breakup of the fuselage had freed it from its stowage and activated its infl- inflation mechanism. So the plane is down in the swamp of the Everglades late at night. And for anyone who isn't familiar with the Everglades, it is a wetlands that is located on the southern tip of the state of Florida. It is swampy. It is is sometimes described as a grassy, slow-moving river. There's a lot of sawgrass. There's mangrove. Alligators are there. It's home to the Florida panther, which is endangered. So it's not an inhabited area. It's very muddy, swampy. A lot of people go there to hunt. In fact, that night, two men were out gigging frogs, which is hunting frogs. Robert Bud Marquis, the the airboat pilot, and his friend Ray Dickinson. While they were out in the airboat spearing frogs, they witnessed the crash. They immediately rushed to the site to rescue any survivors, and there actually were survivors. 75 people in total survived, 67 of the 163 passengers and 8 of the 10 flight attendants. During the rescue, Bud Marquis received burns to his face, arms, and legs from the spilled jet fuel, and despite his injuries, he continued shuttling people in and out of the crash site that night and into the next day. He received the Humanitarian Award from the National Air Disaster Alliance and the Alumitech Airboat Hero Award from the American Airboat Search and Rescue Association. One of the surviving flight attendants, Beverly Raposa, was credited with helping other survivors with several quick thinking actions. She immediately began gathering survivors and shouted for more to come towards the sound of her voice. When she discovered she was covered in jet fuel, she warned survivors not to strike matches. She also sang Christmas carols to keep up hope and get rescue teams' attention, because at the time, flashlights were not part of the standard equipment on commercial airliners at the time. Which seems stupid. Out of the cockpit crew, only flight engineer Repo and the technical officer Donadio survived the initial crash because they were down in the nose electronics bay at the time of impact. First officer Stockstill was killed on impact and Captain Loft died in the wreckage of the flight deck before he could be taken to the hospital. Repo was evacuated to a hospital but later died from his injuries. Donatio ended up recovering from his. Eastern's Senior Vice President of Operations was woken at home by a phone call telling him of a probable crash. He drove to Eastern's Miami offices and chartered a helicopter to the crash site since the swampy terrain made rescue difficult. He was able to land in a swampy patch of grass and coordinated rescue efforts. He accompanied three survivors on the helicopter to the hospital. Most of the deceased were passengers in the plane's midsection. The swamp absorbed most of the energy of the crash, lessening the impact on the aircraft. The mud may have also blocked wounds sustained by survivors, preventing them from bleeding to death. But this also complicated things because the organisms in the swamp caused infection and increased the chance of gangrene. All survivors had injuries. 60 received serious injuries, and 17 suffered minor injuries. Most common were fractures of ribs, spines, pelvises, and lower extremities. 14 survivors had various degrees of burns. There was, of course, an investigation, and it was discovered that the autopilot was unknowingly switched from altitude hold to control wheel steering, Which means that once the pilot releases releases pressure on the yoke, the autopilot maintains the pitch selected by the pilot until he moves the yoke again. It's believed the yoke was accidentally leaned against when turning to speak to the flight engineer. Captain Loft was found to have a brain tumor in an area that controls vision, but the NTSB concluded that the tumor did not contribute to the crash. The final report and cause was pilot error, specifically the failure of the flight crew to monitor the flight instruments during the final four minutes of flight and to detect an unexpected descent soon enough to prevent impact with the ground. Preoccupation with a malfunction of the nose landing gear position indicating system distracted the crew's attention from the instruments and allowed the descent to go unnoticed. This prompted airlines to start crew resource management training for pilots to make problem-solving in the cockpit more efficient and therefore causing less distraction. Flashlights are now standard equipment near jump seats, and all jump seats are outfitted with harnesses. The crash had the highest death toll of any single plane crash in the continental United States. But that isn't where the story ends. Of course not because while a plane crash story is pretty frightening, this is a paranormal podcast, and that means there must be something else going on here. After the crash, hunters, poachers, and wildlife enthusiasts out in the Everglades started reporting strange, unearthly encounters around the crash site. One man said, I was just frog gigging when a face looked up at me from below the surf. A woman's face screaming up, "'Spooked me silly. Never been back to that place since that moment. "'Around here, we do our best to, de- to avoid that area.'" For months and years after the crash, the area became a hotbed of supernatural activity. Ghost lights started popping up around the swamp. Ghosts peered from the gloom into the eyes of hunters. Things swam below the surface of the swamp. Things dressed in rags and tattered clothes. That freaks me out. If I saw something in ratty, tattered clothing swimming under the surface of the water, uh, that's a big nope. I can't even think about that because it completely creeps me out just to imagine it and picture it in my head. Like, I don't even want to do that. I'm trying to not visualize it at all. So after the people were rescued and the wreckage salvaged and the NTSB investigation concluded... The word on the street was that pieces from the flight from flight 401 were reused in other L1011 aircraft, notably the N318EA with Eastern and Lockheed's approval. Specifically, intact galley equipment from the wrecked airliner was used in another plane's galley. In early 1973, the captain of an Eastern Airlines flight from Newark, New Jersey to Miami was asked to check on a passenger in first class. The passenger in question was another eastern pilot who was apparently what they call deadheading, or flying home off the clock, and he wasn't listed on the flight manifest. The man, dressed in full captain's uniform, hadn't responded to the questions of the senior flight attendant. He was just staring straight ahead as if in a daze. When the captain approached the passenger, he said, My God, it's Bob Loft! The problem was that Bob Loft, you may remember, was the captain who died on Flight 401. At JFK Airport in 1973, an Eastern Airlines TriStar was boarding for its flight down to Miami. Traveling on the plane that day was one of the airline's vice presidents. As a VIP passenger, the vice president was allowed on the aircraft first and made his way to the first class cabin. As he neared his seat, he noticed an Eastern Airlines captain in full uniform and went over to have a chat. During the conversation, the vice president suddenly realized that he was speaking to Captain Bob Loft. The apparition quickly disappeared, and the vice president rushed off to find a member of the crew, terrified that it might be an omen that something would happen to the plane. A full search of the plane was carried out before any other passengers were allowed on board, but there was no sign of the mystery captain. A few months later, again at JFK, a crew boarding the same plane were surprised to see Captain Bob Loft already sitting in the flight deck. They chatted with the ghost, not realizing who he was, and while they were chatting, the ghost vanished right before their eyes. Supposedly, the flight ended up being canceled because the crew was too freaked out to operate the plane. An attendant on another New York to Miami flight opened an overhead bin to see Bob Loft's face staring back at her. It was typical on the L 1011 for the flight engineers to arrive before the other crew to carry out their pre-flight checks. One day, the flight engineer was shocked to see an Eastern second-class officer already sat in his seat. He immediately recognized him as Don Repo, the flight engineer from the doomed plane. Before disappearing, the ghost said, You don't need to worry about the pre-flight. I've already done it. Several weeks later, another captain was checking the instruments before a flight from Miami to Atlanta and staring him right in the face was the unmistakable outline of Don Repo's face. The captain said he heard the distinct words, There will never be another crash on an L-1011. We will not let it happen. An entire eastern cockpit crew saw Don Repo sitting amongst them on another flight, and they claimed the dead man warned them about a faulty electrical circuit that they found and repaired. During a flight from Atlanta to Miami on board N318EA, the flight deck crew was enjoying their meal as they cruised at an altitude of 39,000 feet. Suddenly there was a loud knocking coming from the hellhole, which is what the avionics bay beneath the flight deck was called. You know, the area where Don Repo was at the time of the crash. So they hear this banging, and by now the stories of ghosts had been making the rounds within the company and no one wanted to look to see what was making the noise. But the knocking continued, and as the flight engineer opened the hatch, he was terrified to see the face of Don Repo staring back at him. It wasn't just the flight crews that witnessed the paranormal happenings. On one occasion, several caterers who were loading the N318EA in preparation for its next flight were seen rushing off the jet and refused to go back in. When asked why, they all said they had seen a flight engineer standing in the forward galley before simply vanishing. Passengers also reported strange occurrences. A woman sat next to an eastern pilot, who she said looked ill. She called the stewardess only to have the pilot disappear. Another lady summoned a crew member because she was concerned about an unresponsive pilot sitting next to her. The man once again disappeared, and left the passenger in hysterics. After these incidents, both women were shown photos of the deceased 401 crew, and both identified Don Repo as the man they had seen. At this point, the majority of the reports of ghost sightings had been quickly swept under the rug by Eastern. Although the airline refused to believe the stories, the sightings were reported to the independent Flight Safety Foundation, who later said, The reports were given by experienced and trustworthy pilots and crew. We consider them significant. Flight 903 had just taken off from JFK en route to Mexico City. Stewardess Faye Merriweather was in the galley preparing the meals for the passengers, and as she reached for the handle of the oven door, she was horrified to see the face of Don Repo staring back at her. Not prone to panic, she quickly went to get another stewardess, and the aircraft's engineer to come and look. When they returned, Repo's face was still staring out from the oven, though now it appeared like he was trying to say something. Suddenly, all three clearly heard the apparition say, watch out for the fire in this plane. The flight reached Mexico City safely, but on the return flight, problems began with the starboard engine. After an inspection, the plane was cleared for takeoff, but as the plane climbed, the engine failed and backfired several times. It was quickly shut down before it caught fire and returned to the airport. Some stories actually say that it did catch fire. No one was hurt, but the crew was understandably shaken after what was seen in the oven door. Eastern ended up warning their employees that they would face dismissal if they were caught spreading the ghost stories employees who reported sightings to supervisors were typically referred to the company shrink log books from nearly all the flights on which sightings were reported began to disappear this is significant because eastern flight crews were trained to note any and all on-board incidents in the flight log no matter how small or questionable the sightings became more and more frequent and rumors circulated that pilots and crew refused to fly on the L-1011s that had parts from Flight 401. All of the salvage parts from 401 were removed from the jets, though Eastern says there were never any salvage parts to used to begin with. After the parts were removed, Bob Loft and Don Repo were never seen again, but their promise to protect Eastern's L-1011 fleet came true. There were no other fatal crashes on the TriStar fleet. Eastern Airlines ceased operations in 1991. An original floorboard from Flight 401 is in the archives at History of Miami in South Florida. Many people believe the piece is cursed. Other parts of Flight 401 can apparently be found in Ed and Lorraine Warren's Occult Museum in Monroe, Connecticut. Some other interesting tidbits, Flight 401 had been a fully booked flight and the cabin was supposed to be filled to capacity, but at least 65 people who were supposed to be on board failed to make the flight, supposedly due to wintry weather, traffic, or perhaps divine intervention. And strangely enough, Flight 401 was not the only plane approaching Miami that night with a possible landing gear problem. National Airlines Flight 607 Had reported a similar issue but was unable to resolve it, prompting the airport to roll out a full emergency response. The air traffic controller had his hands full dealing with this emergency and was paying little attention to the Eastern Flight 401. The National Airlines plane landed safely. The story of Flight 401 was widespread. Investigative reporter John G. Fuller wrote a book in 1976 called The Ghost of Flight 401. Eastern allegedly was so angry about this book that they considered suing, but they didn't, and it ended up being made into a made-for-TV movie in 1978. Bob Welch, formerly of Fleetwood Mac, recorded a song titled The Ghost of Flight 401 for his 1979 solo album, Three Hearts. I'll make sure to link those items in the show notes for you and share them on social media. That's going to do it for this episode. As always, you can find Lurk on your favorite podcast listening platform or at lurkpodcast.com, where you can also find links to our social media pages. Make sure you give us a follow. There's merch available at lurkpodcastmerch.com. And as always, keep lurking. Mm